Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. Our special guest for the show today is Anand Ava, the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Cloud Platform at Altium, a global leader in PCB design software. Anand is a top-performing business and finance executive with over a decade of experience leading SaaS-focused product technology companies as CFO and COO. His career is a testament to his leadership and strategic prowess. He has been instrumental in positioning companies as leaders in their respective spaces, such as Rike in project management, Lastline in the cybersecurity space, and PipeY in the low-code application platform sector. Anand is also a mentor and advisor to other startups, a published author, a frequently requested speaker at industry conferences, and a transformational leader who has been actively recruited by PE and VC investors to build revenue, open new international markets, optimize financial performance, build partnerships, and develop high-performance teams. One of his personal projects is MarshallMe, a unique platform that utilizes computer vision post-detection AI to teach martial arts. With a vast array of strengths from executive leadership, strategic analysis, operations management, to product lifecycle, financial management, and technology transformation, Anand brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table. So let's dive in into the conversation and learn from Anand's journey and insights. Anand, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time and glad to have you here. Hey, Rohit. Glad to be here. Good to reconnect. Let's dive in uh, with a little bit of your background. So tell us, how did you make your way into corporate America? Yeah, it's an interesting journey. So originally born and raised in India, then moved to the States at the awkward time uh, in the middle of high school. I did my undergrad and grad from University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. It was a combination of economics as well as accounting. Accounting was more to make sure I had a job. (laughs) Economics was actually the true passion because I wanted to, and I didn't think I'd work. I, I thought I'd go into the PhD program. But prior to getting admitted to any PhD program, you needed two years worth of real world experience. And so one of my professors, he, he, he was either going to the East Coast and working in banking or coming out to the West Coast and working in public accounting, largely because of the network through academia and purely for weather reasons. <laughs> I ended up uh, in the Bay Area with my, my first role being with KPMG in the Silicon Valley office. So that was my entry point into corporate America. Very cool. How was the move from India to the U.S.? Uh, w- were your parents moving out or did you make the choice to move to U.S. for high school? Uh, no, we, it was a family decision. My dad worked at Motorola and he was asked to come to Schaumburg, Illinois. And, and I have a 
brother who's also differently abled. So we felt, okay, maybe he'll have better resources coming to the United States. So that was largely the motivation to come to the United States. So there wasn't anything other than that. So I'd say the transition, yeah, I mean, it's an awkward time, like where you're finding yourself and you're trying to understand the world and how you fit in. I, I won't say it was easy. It had sure. a lot of... Uh, ups and downs. And this is, I think one thing is, you know, I, I really appreciate the connected world of like social media and other things right now, because then there was nothing, right? There was no email, there's no social media. So I, just keeping in touch even with high school friends, etc., cetera, uh, that kind of organically died out very quickly and you almost have to rebuild right from scratch. So yeah, it wasn't easy, but I'm sure people have gone through like more dire circumstances than that. But I think it also it almost acted as a catalyst to really find yourself and, and make sure that you're not in your comfort zone, like talking about operating well outside your comfort zone. That's one quick way to do it. Very cool. How did the move then from KPMG to the corporate finance side in companies happened? Again, very indirectly. So I was at KPMG. I had the opportunity to work on a couple couple of companies that were going IPO. And this was back in the day where everyone would be at the printers. And this isn't to say like it's good or bad. It is just what it is. Yes, we had a lot of SEC comment letters. Yes, you have to get the S1 out, et cetera. But frankly, nobody cared <laughs> about the the work that's being done there at a strategic level, right? So if you zoom out, when you have to do a roadshow and build the build a book, while this mattered, it was largely viewed, at least for the first stage, for the rocket to launch, almost as a compliance checklist as opposed to the necessary driver. And it really struck me how a lot of non-GAAP metrics and sort of the, the broader story, especially with the bankers driving it, was something that folks were keying in on significantly more. And as I continued to sort of look at how, you know, the earnings call versus the 10Q, like what, what mattered, right, at the end of the day, and this may sound very obvious in retrospect, but there was a lot more dynamism there. And I wanted to say, okay, what's going on there? But what's interesting is I, I transitioned to sort of a hedge fund on the sell side where, and, and we also did research on the sell side where we focused on shorting stocks. And of course, one of the triggering elements to build your short thesis cannot just be fundamentals because timing is everything when you're shorting. And so the best way is to see, okay, where is their distress in the accounting and in the financials to build to that triggering event. And that was actually probably, at least from a career perspective, an incredible learning experience, largely because I could anchor on what I knew really well, which is sort of the technical accounting aspects, but then fold in doing you know your classic, not even corporate finance, but investment finance, and, and then looking at fundamentals. So it was the, the right uh, intersection of three Venn diagrams where... I would say at least as a finance professional, the growth arc was quite significant. And then, yeah, after that, I did that for about two and a half years. And shorting is a, is a bit niche. And I said, okay, what do we do next? Um, and it was, it was busy. It was quite stressful because there's, there's a lot of ups and downs <laughs> going through, through that side. But I got, uh, Google had reached out to me for 
and in two or three interesting roles. So this is back in the day where you'd come on campus, you'd be amazed uh, at all <laughs> of sort of the parks. Now, obviously, things are changing. And I really enjoyed the experience, enjoyed the people that I met. And that's how I made my first foray or step into corporate finance. All right. Very cool. And you were there at Google for a couple of years, right? Yeah, through close to, I forget, about three years. Three years, okay. And then uh, you moved to LiveOps, which was sort of your first CFO role. That's right. Yeah, that's where we met. Yeah, so LiveOps. So Mark Westover, who was the head of corp dev at LiveOps, reached out. So, So just as a background, the company had been very much in the effectively the first uh, Uber for customer service and support, uh, mm-hmm. or if you call it 1-800 number, yeah, there was a, a huge pool of independent contractors that would come on. Very much combination of a labor marketplace with a delivery aspect on top. And the business model was fundamentally very different than taking the same sort of core architecture and platform and repurposing it to a cloud-based contact center solution that enterprise companies would appreciate and use. And they were really looking for someone who could reconcile the two and help build sort of the right financial model. And this is the classic, as you know, given your background, the thesis that the parts are worth uh, potentially greater than the whole. Yeah. Just because yeah. different different buyers and different markets and different journeys and different financial profiles. So that's the reason I was brought in and that's the transformation that I led there. Makes sense. And then after LiveOps, you as a CFO, you ended up moving to Reich as a COO, mm-hmm. which is quite unusual to think about from a from a corporate finance professional's perspective. And especially not many people have done that transition after just one gig as the CFO. People might want to do, you know, two, three, four, and then say, okay, I'm tired of this, you know, you're closing books every single month, rolling out reports, MISs every single month, want to do something more on the business side, right? What was the thought process then? And what did you have to switch in your mind to be able to now be more of a business driver? Not to say that CFO is not, but then there's a different muscle as a COO than a CFO. Yeah, I must confess it, it wasn't planned or as linear as perhaps it might look. So I, when I joined, the primary mandate was to run the back office. So, I mean, it was like a CFO plus, right? So you got an HR, you have a few other things. Mm-hmm. Not a true COO role in the traditional sense, with, with the exception that some of the sales ops, marketing operations, pricing, like where, you know, it's sort of a gray area where if you're building your driver base model, because that's so critical for your driver base models, you start participating more. And I think I think the the fancy term that I've heard is okay. That's now strategic finance, right? So p- pretty much like the brains of orchestrating the go to market side and 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 starting to build out that muscle. So as things rolled up into we're, we're going through an incredibly quick growth that things reconciled. And so I was brought in in that capacity. And that what had happened through a series of events is we we, we lost three executives in quick succession. I'd say mm-hmm. in a space of two months. I always say if you're going to go into a, a boardroom and the number of board members outnumber the management team, <laughs> you, you kind of know you're in trouble and you, you probably need to do a better job. Yep. And so it was at that time that I would say, and that was sort of six months 
into the role um, where they said, okay, purely for practical purposes, why don't we split the company and I'll take the go-to-market and GNA and the founder, Andrew, who's sort of a, a phenomenal product visionary, sat more on the product and, and R&D side. And of course, the, the classic role as a CEO. And so that was my first foray. And the funny thing is like the business was doing well, right? Uh, I mean, we definitely had like all the normal growing pains, but I think half my calendar was just hiring. So one of the Mm -hmm. muscles that I quickly had to learn was hiring. And I think finance, at least in my previous roles, you have the luxury of uh, planning. Like you kind of, if if I had to use the cricket analogy, it's like playing a test match. You can kind of anticipate how the pitch would deteriorate or how the ball is going to start turning. And then accordingly, the coaching staff and the players can sort of decide what, what the plan will be and then appropriately hire to it. The second you start going into go-to-market, it's chaos. And not because you can't plan and not because there's anything wrong with it. It's just that you have to respond to the market while you're trying to scale your organization, while the reality is you have a lot of amazing people and they're going through incredible growth, personal growth, and they're going to look for new opportunities. So sort of balancing the three-way dance is something that I, I would say that that switch from a classic, not even like I would say a finance role, but any corporate role where you you have some distance and you have you have the ability to plan to getting into the frontline action of things because even engineering is sort of a close close cousin right to to finance in that sense but yeah once you go go on this side you have to build your fast twitch muscle and it turns into a t20 match and it's it's fun but it's also very exhausting the second thing is the voice of the customer. I, I think it's not to say that finance executives don't appreciate the customer, but the lens with which we would evaluate the business is very much in terms of numbers, the business model, etc. But the lens that you have to apply in go-to-market there's the tangible aspects, but there's a lot of intangible aspects. In fact, one of the things, not necessarily at Reich, but one of the things at Pipefy, and this was during COVID, mm. that the rep said is we were we were competing against a very good firm in India. But the only reason they went for us is because they liked the fact that they were talking to someone and that right. it wasn't just like a pure... PLG model and they needed like a Sherpa to guide them through some change management, right? So there are these sort of subtle things that you start hearing from customers and individually not a big deal breaker, but when aggregated, they actually Mm -hmm. help really influence pricing packaging and how you should think about your business model and i wish i knew a good way to solve that because you're really relying on a lot of human touch and uh and and a human being sort of correlating those signals to then drive or change the business model but i think that was a really big shift and the third one i would say is really getting into product so if you have a lot of change combined with a lot of signal coming in from customers, your best defense mechanism, especially if you're in the software side, is product. The product is phenomenally important. Without that, uh, no one's going to be doing anything. But it's it's obviously rare for like a finance person to go really deep into... Okay, I think the, the high-level 
sort of classic IR pitch um, is understood and the fundamental value prop is understood. But then going in and saying, wait, why are we doing the user onboarding like this? Yeah. It seems like it's a lot. Why can't we do this? Like the That's what I mean by like going really deep to understand where value is created and how value is consumed becomes that much more important. So yeah, for me, the Reich journey was more going from a sort of that marathon runner or a test match to, okay, you have to build a very quick sort of fast twitch muscle and i must confess it's very hard to do both it's meaning that that was my first one where you're asked to do both simultaneously and <laughs> you're burning the candle on, on both ends but it was yeah it was invaluable to sort of take that to, to the next stage yeah and you did that once again at last line yeah however hard it was so certainly I, I guess you had a lot of steam left in yourself to be able to repeat that and then continue to be more on that COO or sort of more on that true business path with Pipe 5 as well as now with Altium. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the thought process behind continuing your journey on this path versus kind of molding it more towards the CFO path. Yeah, I would say that after that, things got a little more deterministic. And I said, okay, I have to really think about my career and what I want to do. I think I definitely have a passion for the build stage. And I always thought, okay, what's the gold standard for a CFO? And what's the gold standard for, let's just call it, for lack of a better term, an operator of the business, mm -hmm. right? I, I genuinely believe the gold standard for a CFO is someone who can take a company public. And many reasons for that largely because, at least in my view, you're a creationist, right? So the largely speaking, the long sort of pension funds, et cetera, they don't know who you are. How do you articulate what the business does and then the storytelling aspect? And then how do you translate that into numbers, which is sort of the symptoms or the outputs of the business model? I mean, that's invaluable. And I think if you want to get the gold medal, if you're able to do that, that means you're probably one of the best. Yeah. For an operator, it's sort of, okay, how, how are you going to muscle through this product market fit journey and get through a certain traction? And then after that, it becomes more of an optimization exercise. So that's not to say like there's no value with optimizers. Obviously, scaling a business from a 200 or $300 million to a billion dollar business takes a lot of skill and you're doing a lot. But then it becomes a combination of portfolio management and platform management versus going through the grind of either disrupting an existing player or creating a whole new market category. So I think, at least in my, my simple mental model, that would be like the second gold standard. Largely, when I was thinking through this, the first one and I had equal passion for both, like meaning I don't ha I don't think one is better than the other or it was one's more valuable than the other. I think financially, both of them are very lucrative if you're a professional. So there's not a big uh, delta between the two. But the, the reality is there's not that many companies <laughs> that have gone public. Maybe things will change now with a much more disciplined private market. But to get to even the goalpost to take a shot at it, it's incredibly rare. And largely because companies will get acquired or now I think the goal, at least when I was in the sort of public accounting realm, it was, yeah, you know, get to 100 million, roughly billion dollar market cap, you're good to go. And now that has shifted to 250 to even, I would argue, 500 million in, in revenue. And yeah, your market cap better be well north of 5 to 10 billion for 
for you to be able to do it effectively. So it's not to say there's not sort of other IPOs happening below that, but at least one that that sort of passes sort of this, I'll call it gold standard smell test that's there. And so it was really, okay, how many of those opportunities existed? And to be very candid, maybe I had a shot at one. And that was all also like a very loose one. And yeah, I had a lot of people just telling me like, you're just never going to get that shot because you've never been a public company CFO, which is very fair. So it wasn't about ability or intellect or anything. It was just risk management, right? Uh, which I totally get. If I was on the board, I would say, no, no, <laughs> I want someone who's yeah. actually done this before. Or you you pick the right horse that, that's going to go all the way. Um, Everyone looks for proof points. Yeah, and it makes yeah. complete sense. The other one, though, actually, people are very risk averse. So there's plenty of talented people uh, who could probably go through the grind of going through that journey, but choose not to <laughs> because they know it's fraught with a lot of risk and a lot of pain and a lot of uh, tribulations. And I said, okay, well, I keep getting called for those types of opportunities. Must be, I must be doing something right because I'm correlate. I, I would say the sort of the best thing I could do is correlate product marketing and sales together to then then go through that journey so i said okay maybe i'll double down on that particular motion and that's what largely led to the next series of uh, of sort of changes sounds quite interesting so maybe before we move on tell us a little about your current role as the gm of cloud platform at altium as well as maybe introduce altium to the listeners yeah, Altium's a very interesting company. It's, it has a long history. I'd say founded, I think, in 1985, but it's gone through a bunch of iterations and publicly listed in the Australian Stock Exchange. Early days, sort of at the inception, the idea was computer-aided drafting. So ECAD, so electronic computer-aided drafting, was the software product. For the longest time, it was a sleepy space. But, you know, very steady, 20 to 30% growth, 30% plus operating margins. So very healthy business, but niche, for lack of a better term. Now, things have changed pretty drastically over the last five years, where, where everything from Tesla to SpaceX to planes to computers to IoT devices, the proliferation of electronics is incredible. And it's not stopping. If anything, it's only accelerating. And definitely the ECAD space has continued to see this resurgence. There's also been some geopolitical things with sort of the CHIPS Act and manufacturing sort of coming back to not just the United States, but even Western Europe, largely because of COVID. Some of the supply chain disruptions that companies experience, they're really rethinking about diversifying it, which has that now propagated new centers right, for design and, and manufacturing. And so that sort of market fundamentals really effectively, I think, has been an incredible tailwind for not just Altium, but the entire space in general. COVID also opened up and accelerated the company's product roadmap on this virtualization layer that was sitting on top of the desktop software, which is now branded Altium 365. And so Altium 365 basically is the system of engagement. That's the way I would frame it on top of not just your ECAT tools. So we certainly support Altium Designer, but we do it for everyone, right? So whether you're talking about Cadence or we are talking about a low-end tool like a KeyCAD, but not only that, you can also 
think about integrating into PLM systems, into MCAT tools like SOLIDWORKS and others. And so as you're designing the electronics, you basically have a one-stop shop for all of the users, everyone from manufacturers to software folks to mechanical engineers to system engineers to interface the product and see it come live. And so the whole notion of shift left, which is now the manufacturer can come in and say, no, 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 you know, you need more copper wiring here or this is too close to the edge or the, the mechanical person saying, oh, okay, like I need to now shrink my encasing because you've miniaturized your board. These conversations are happening in a very collaborative way. And the, effectively what we call co-design is happening in a way where it's not happening all the way at the end where we violated some requirement and restarting the entire design cycle. So the biggest value prop in my view of that layer is accelerating the time to market for product. In that organic journey, we've also discovered other things and sort of maybe for the audience here, what's close to their heart is procurement. So electronics procurement is interesting. As things are being built, the engineer is not thinking about part availability and some sometimes they make up parts that don't exist. Uh, so, okay, I need a resistor. There's sort of a resistor in there, but with the parameters, but they haven't selected an actual resistor from, from any of the components that are available. So in that particular environment, we're now seeing procurement folks coming in and saying, okay, I want to be involved sooner because if you're going to pick something that's in short supply, I need to know. And we've then brought in the data tooling. We have another asset called Octopart, which is a marketplace for electronic components. So we brought that data in and there's a bunch of other third-party service providers where we can give you a real-time assessment as you're selecting your components, the health of your build of materials, essentially to say, okay, this is a 52-week time window and then alerting even the engineer who can then say, oh, okay, we have a six-week window for new product release, so let me swap out that component. And I really think, you know, as at least in my mental model, as we as we sort of think about this journey, Altium is probably going to be the best bridge between the and the, and the interaction layer between this very complex supply chain, this $2 trillion supply chain and design, and bringing in procurement professionals, manufacturers, et cetera, to make sure that this entire process is A, much more efficient, and B, I think I read a statistic that over 10% or 15% of the waste in terms of plastics comes just purely from this process where they make it and they're like, oh, this is not going to work. So, you know, you, you, you kind of dump it. Wow. So even from a, you know, at a human level, right, making things more digital and driving the digital transformation to reduce waste in the physical world, we're, we're definitely pushing very hard uh, in that journey. That certainly sounds like a pretty cool company, especially with the ability to be able to bring together multiple personas into one single system and have them take different value out of it. Makes total sense. So moving on, as you have been a CFO yourself and have certainly seen many CFOs and has worked with many CFOs, would love to understand from you, how do you define the modern CFO and how maybe has this role evolved over the last, call it 10 to 15 years? That's a great question. I think at least, you know, going through school and the classic business model casing, and I would still argue this is largely the case for most companies. The role of the CFO is effectively there to manage downside risk. Now, the risk can come in terms of, hey, we're losing a lot of engineers because salaries are going crazy and we need to be more effective in our compensation plan, all the way to there's some new disruptive thing that's come up. It's fundamentally going to change our business model, so we need to adjust it. I think that's always been the traditional 
traditional role of the CFO and sort of the voice of reason. And I won't say that I'll use this word truth, but uh, not to say that others are untruthful, but but basically the voice or the perceptive voice of what is the downside risk for this business. And certainly the CEO is sort of speaking more to the upside. I think what has shifted, and this may be a very biased view just because of Silicon Valley, and, and this is before, I would say, the, the current year and a half ago, the, the shift in the private marketplaces. But then the role of the CFO shifted drastically to be like, hey, you have to be this growth agent. And so if you are supposed to, quote unquote, articulate the business model and really really validate a business model that's going to get us the best shareholder value, the best way to do that is through growth. So nobody cares about the OPEX side. We need growth because growth solves all problems, as, as the famous Eric Schmidt said. So the mindset shifted drastically, at least in my tenure as as the CFO and, and a lot of the Bay Area CFOs and, and other high-growth software company CFOs like yourself. Yeah, you're managing the downside risk, but if we're intellectually honest, how much time are we spending on, gee, I wonder what would happen if a Silicon Valley bank goes down and uh, where's the distribution of my cash, right? Or I wonder if I have the right expense reimbursement policy. Uh, in fact, there's one CFO who said, I don't even believe in expense reimbursement policy because nobody reads it, which I agree with. But it, it, I, I'm just speaking to like the complete shift in mental mindset of, well, what happened to governance and what happened to controls? And there are okay, there's another personality, which is the controller that's going to take care of that. But my job as a CFO is to go and help the business figure out the next growth arc. And I was talking to another friend of mine, even just as recently as this weekend, where it was interesting because he, he came from the corporate controller world and he shifted to the CFO world. And you could definitely see like complete like shift in the mindset right now. The last year and a half may have completely changed that. And with all of the fun things that have happened in the capital markets, yeah. including the unfortunate challenges at Silicon Valley Bank, maybe they're sort of, well, hold on, like you can't just manage the upside. We kind of need you to play defense and really stress test the model on, well, what if you don't get to your numbers? Like how much cash do you have? And how are you managing 24 months of cash flow, et cetera? So I think at least definitely in the startup to mid-market ecosystem, that's the conversation. I would say in the public company arena, it hasn't changed much. Uh, I think there things have been a little more constant and I can't speak from direct experience, but generally as companies have gotten bigger and bigger as they go public, they're the role of the CFO of building confidence and trust in your in your long-only investors and building conviction, driving to plus or minus 3% of variance on, on your quarterly earnings, et cetera. I think that playbook has largely remained the same. I'm sure like risk compliance Clients, those things have actually probably worsened because even when I was last night in cybersecurity, the involvement of the CFO in cybersecurity and other areas kind of escalated, especially in larger public companies because the financial risk associated with the breach is quite significant. So I would say over there, I think the role of the CFO is still, you know, the anchor to manage the downside risk. It's not to say they're not participating in the upside, but I think there's a bigger ecosystem that gets you grounded because of all the public company rules and regulations that forces you to pay attention. But yeah, private companies, I think the pendulum swung one way and maybe it's sort of coming back to the center on the role of the CFO.
Makes sense. Seems like, as you mentioned on the security side, seems like there is a bunch of other automation that is also now falling in the lap of a CFO. And they need to drive much of that, whether it's around data, it's around sort of the uh, technology stack of the finance organization, or let's say legal HR admin, if those also come under the CFO's purview. Any specific commentary on how maybe COVID has changed that one way or the other? Or you think sort of now with the current environment that we are in after, you know, the the funding taps have been stopped, sort of what does that automation quotient look like for the CFO's office over maybe the next three years? I mean, in terms of automation, I was just reading this story and I might be butchering this, which is an agent took a day to build a video game that took developers I think three plus years. And there's a lot of this, I would say, hype now, right? But I think there was like the Web 3.0 hype, but this this feels very real because the, the, they're actually active proof points coming versus imagining a, a world of the future where there's definitely, in my view, there's going to be a pretty big disruption to developers and a lot of professionals where one would have said, well, my gosh, that, that's a very rare skill set. And Obviously, software is going to move to address the area where there's the biggest shortage. Now, the Wall Street Journal also says, hey, there's a big shortage of accountants because people are just not interested in accounting anymore, right? And if you look at any labor report, accounting is definitely in the top five, right? So it's a safe profession to go into. And if you kind of look at smart entrepreneurs, and I think today I also read on TechCrunch Trillion, which is this, I, I don't know much about them, but it seemed to be like this accounting system where your auditors, your bankers, and your internal stakeholders can all manage the entire system in, in, in one platform, right? You would have to imagine like those roles get completely disrupted. And I'm not even sure I'd call that automation. It's like a, it's, I was talking to a partner when I was at KPMG and he was sort of echoing, you know, the good old days were, were so great because, you know, we didn't have any Excel and we didn't have any computers. So and you can't take the financials home with you right? The, the paper work and the journal entries. So they had these big binders and yeah, you'd work eight to five, you'd do the, your reviews, you'd have to manually put things together. And I was like, oh my God, like that, that just sounds crazy. Like why would, this sounds like unreal. And I was, you know, this, this 21 year old to say like, that would drive me nuts, right? Now that took some time to disrupt. But I think what's going to happen is like three years later, people were taking pictures of their receipt and then uploading it to an expense reimbursement platform. That just sounds crazy. Like, can you just have an ETL directly into Starbucks or the restaurant, et cetera? Because the credit card knows what happened and they can authenticate it and they can just push it back. So why do you need a receipt, right? And I, I know there's some certain tax authorities needed. And then you have to classify it as like, okay, is it like food and beverages? So you don't get as much tax credit if it's... Uh, if it's like a, depending on the expense type. So I totally get the rationale, but if one receipt and an AI agent is trained that, oh, this is where this goes, the amount of automation that's probably going to happen is pretty significant. And even if you look at a monolith like a Workday or others, where now you have these agents that can train on just looking at a software stack and saying, replicate the software stack for me, but make it better with a easier UI UX. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty big change. So it's a long-winded answer. I'm not sure that's going to happen. 
I mean, maybe I'm being very overly optimistic that optimistic in a sense from a technical perspective that these things can come and become reality very soon. But the implications for the back office are pretty significant. And I would definitely say, or at least over the next decade, if you're like a finance professional, you may almost have to rethink, okay, where's my value add? Because if data entry, data management is a big chunk of it, you will have to think through like that is probably going to get disrupted in some way, shape or form. Got it. Tell us maybe one piece of work or an area within finance that you hated or didn't like much to spend time on. Consolidations and getting <laughs> getting the financials together. And I must confess, it's at every time there was FX involved and there was enough, a foreign entity involved. And even the accounting for it, right? Uh, like what goes into the equity and what goes into the P&L, that translation, the charge and the transaction charge. And then consequently, because of that one thing, the impact on the cash flow statement, which would delay the release of the financials sometimes by weeks. And there's some poor souls who are trying to figure this out in the accounting organization say, why isn't this working? And then you just sit there and wonder, I'm like, how is this possible? Like, so we have a double, entry accounting system things are supposed to flow the right way there's some system issue with netsuite or whatever or however however we set it up on the third entity that's not recognizing this but then i'm like wouldn't we have caught this like way up front why is this like a fire drill moment right now and i think a, it was frustrating because it seemed like such an insignificant thing and that was holding up things the other one is like uh, share-based compensation. That, that's that, that's a whole other story. But that one I understood. This one, I think what really irritated me is not so much that it took the time, et cetera. It's, it's that I actually could never get around to understanding it, to understanding why this is happening. Like with the other things, I, I kind of felt, okay, I'm, I could I could finally get to the ground truth of why this is happening. But that one thing, I still don't get this. Like, how could this possibly happen? And why are we moving to Excel now to solve this? And then we have to do this every quarter. Like, how, how, how does this make sense? Cool. One area that you did like the most within the finance domain? I would say I loved raising money mm. and the storytelling. N not because every time went swimmingly well. Like, I mean, there's a lot of times where it was really bad, but I really enjoyed the storytelling because there was a lot of feedback that you would get on the metrics, but you also got a lot of feedback on the business and uh, the downside risk or the upside risk that you'd have to manage. Makes sense. One thing that you like about uh, the CEO or, you know, the, your current role as a GM, one particular area that you love the most? brings you much closer to the customer. And I think there's a people aspect, which is just because of the nature of your role, you have to spend a lot more time with product, customer success, marketing, sales, and finance, right? So I think the whole notion of company building or nation building, where you have a lot of stakeholders, a lot of different views, it comes through very strongly in these roles versus you know the classic sort of divisional role where sometimes you might be in an echo chamber where everyone's complaining about something. <laughs> there, there isn't the other voice to say, well, you know, the reason, guys, we have to do this is because X, Y, and Z. Now that you have worn both the hats, one on the finance side of a CFO and then on the other side as a COO or now a GM, what would you recommend to a CFO to be the best way to work with you as a GM or a COO? 
That's a great question. I think one thing I'm noticing is there's several areas, but if I had to pick one, I know this is a cliche, but people say you should learn the business. Like you should actually understand the business, yeah. right? And I think a lot of people think, oh yeah, yeah, no, I understand the business. Like there's the metrics and I see things. And then you say, oh, okay. And you ask, okay, what, what's the total cost? right of uh, like how, how much like how much are you spending on people and programs i think good finance professionals say oh yeah it's about 80 to 85 percent people let's say we're classic software non-manufacturing right and then you're like oh, okay what's my attrition rate and then they're like oh oh i don't know it's okay so then how are you modeling for the fact that i'm going to lose a few people and then i have to backfill those people but then in the current market condition i have to put a 10 percent premium right every single time i do this and they're like oh okay i didn't realize that right so let me do it and then oh by the way like those how, what's my average cycle to fill that role because i'm really struggling here with uh, the recruiting team and, and getting the right type of talent and we saw some of this right in that 2020 2021 like the the crazy cycle but I, I would be shocked if most finance professionals had not i'm not saying like an explicit line item and an assumption baked into the model but they kind of just step back and they said okay maybe i should think about this and then fat finger in like a delay in terms of how the budget is done or assume like a, a pretty interesting inflation rate for the devops secops like those kinds of roles that are very sensitive and so that's what i mean by like okay you know like you have to really get close to the business where i think the numbers actually are wonderful because you kind of see the symptom after the fact versus before the fact the other thing i'd say is the bane for most finance professionals is something weird just got sold and it's going to create like an insane rev rec issue downstream and you know is it selling is it sell through what is it etc some basic concepts right if you kind of knew and you participated in the monetization strategy upfront and what is product thinking, et cetera. And I think part of it is because of just resource constraints in finance where you just don't have the time to do it. And the rate at which yeah. the thinking happens and the evolution happens is fairly quickly, but it's impossible for you to be in all those meetings as a finance professional. But I can almost guarantee if you spend one hour once a quarter, get all the product managers and whoever is doing pricing and packaging, et cetera, together and say, look, guys, let me just explain like the downstream implications when you make a decision like this and what does it mean for Reverick and what do we need you to track in your systems and processes so we can do this effectively are you going to prevent every single weird thing happening no but i think the ability or flexibility for the business to adapt to something that doesn't create problems downstream is significantly more than an accountant going and changing fasb's mind on some rule right for some standard so clearly like if they're educated they'd probably change it but i think making that investment even myself included when i was wearing that hat it kind of happened in a very abrasive way where it's like what were you guys thinking like we're not set up to do this and then they're like well it sounded like a good business plan and nobody actually educated them that this is simply not possible to do or if you were going to do it what would be a different approach like finance is sort of seen more as a well you should just go and approve this but i I think if if there's more education done then you might even get invited right to the thought process of okay we're thinking about baking in hardware with our SaaS tools so how should we think about this problem and what's the best way to avoid revrec issues I love the part about communicating with uh, the upstream stakeholders. Makes a lot of sense. Tell us, uh, how did you hold back overstepping 
your boundaries and uh, really perhaps advising the CFOs that you work with. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot of ideas, right? Being able to see the finance side of things as well as now the customer side of things a lot more closely than you know a typical CFO would. So, so how, how do you balance that? I think generally I, I appreciate the challenges and complexity. So in fact, even yesterday, I actually just carved out 30 minutes to sit down and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but these are three things that we're thinking about doing, but we're not set up to do this. It's not going to happen now, but we're thinking about this and it'll happen three to six months. And there's a big discussion on like who, who's going to own RevOps? Is it going to be sales? Is it going to be finance? Is it going to be a combination? So the good news, bad news is you kind of see the storm coming uh, or, you know, the, again, this is one of those other things I've never understood, the crazy last minute oh my god we have to file our taxes we have to do r&d capitalization <laughs> go through and do the allocation for your developers right now of course like my head of product and engineering they completely ignore those excel spreadsheets and they're like just do what you did last year right is this kind of the answer which is generally where everyone ends up but i, I kind of know okay yeah that's really stressful and it's a pretty big deadline it's probably going to take these guys like 30 minutes at most to go through 150 rows and i'm able to at least say guys like if you don't do this we may not get five Five hundred to six hundred thousand dollars, right, or whatever, whatever the amount might be, and they're like, "Oh, okay." Like, I didn't realize that that's the implication, right? For because nobody sat down with them and said, "Because we're doing this R and D cap, this is the bottom line impact, right, to yeah. what, what we're doing here." And you know, most people are good corporate citizens, and if they know that, then they will hustle um, to do it. So it's been largely sort of goodwill building to say, "Okay, I'm I'm kind of moving these blockers away, and can you help me?" And the I mean. We all know like all of the flaws in budgeting. So, okay, you're going to assume all of the TBHs are going to be done in the next 30 days. But I know this rec has been open for 200 plus days and it's not going to be filled, right? And the whole, yeah, but that's that's my buffer, right, for, for other things that happen. So you can cut through the, I don't understand why there's like this overhead allocation into <laughs> my, my cost center, et cetera. So I think it's just been easier to communicate. And as long as the intent is under understood you just do what needs to happen so if we have to cut costs we'll do it if we have to accelerate it because we're not spending enough that's also very easy to do so that's not been the biggest challenge I think the bigger challenge is more the metrics if you've trained the public markets on certain metrics or even in private companies, if you train the board on certain metrics, I remember this in, in one of the previous companies where they had like a, the LTV to CAC ratio, but the way it's being calculated and th there's a lot of assumptions there on the perpetuity of the revenue stream. And now you have to say, no, 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 let's just look at simple payback because, you know, when you're looking at this LTV to CAC, we, we might be overestimating the benefits versus if you look at payback, how much you put in, in customer acquisition costs may change pretty drastically. So there, the issue is the why and how do we, especially if you have a board member who's like really passionate about LTV to CAC for some reason, like sort of retraining them on the reality is. That's where, I don't know, I wouldn't call it overstepping the bounds, but it's more of, I'm not sure that's the best metric to, to measure the performance of the business, but it's logical. So most people get to the answer fairly quickly. Right. Very cool. Let's talk a little about the CEO-CFO 
relationship, mm-hmm. right? One of the most important relationships in any company. And I know you have had your fair share of exposures to different types of CEOs. So whether whether it's a CEO CFO relationship or in you know in the same way maybe the CEO COO relationship you know quite critical and there's, there's a lot of trust involved in it so tell us how did you think about that relationship throughout your career and do you have any specific tips for for the listeners to be able to harness that relationship in a way that lends to a much better value for the company i think the way i've always approached it is what are the strengths that the founder ceo or whoever had and what do i need to do to complement it so interestingly enough like I've, I've worked with technical founders and they're incredibly good with numbers and even like a quick you know 20 minute session with them they'll probably school you on hey like you know you can't treat this as an annuity that's just not possible what about the software upgrades that have to happen etc cetera, etc cetera. you're not baking that into your costs, etc. So I, I think, you know, the left brain is kicking in really well. They're very good at articulating the technology, but not necessarily like the, okay, the, the so what, right, of, of doing this and the impact. So they're okay. You, you clearly know, okay, you, you probably have to take on the role of being a better storyteller, especially during capital raises. And even internally in the organization, they may struggle to rally the troops at an emotional level. I think intellectual level, 100%, but an emotional level there's there's sort of a different style to communicate then there's like a professional ceo who is my god amazing right at bringing the team together and incredibly charismatic but maybe number is not the strong suit that's not to say like he was weak at it, it it's it's just much more like style and where one would invest more time and focus right okay there you knew okay i like i i really have to spend more time up front before we go into these board meetings and and really train on this and why something is doing what it's doing and and how to interpret some of the outcomes. So I always think it's a team sport. And and also like one of the things that I thought was useful is actually talking about uh, your own weaknesses, right? So certainly I'm not a developer and I don't know certain things at an architectural level. And I'm very open to say like, look, I'm going to have a hard time measuring the performance of like the engineering organization when it comes to these things. I'm much better at these other things, right? And I need your help to coach me on how was this built and how, how were you measuring like the throughput? So I think as long as it's pretty open, it works. So far, I've been generally very fortunate. Not a lot of sort of fireworks either between that relationships, especially if you have like a, a CEO with integrity, etc. That The challenge is more, I think, the, the balancing act between the CEO, CFO, slash COO, and the board. This is an interesting triangle. If I were to say like where I've struggled, it's probably on that dimension where you kind of feel like, wait, are you guys talking like the CEO and the board? Or there's just a marriage that the CEO entered into with with an investor or whoever who just fundamentally a completely different understanding of the business, the trajectory of the business or what needs to happen. And you have to be kind of very careful about the reset because you're obviously trying to make sure you're protecting the integrity of whatever your CEO said or did, especially if it's a founder. But at the same time, ensuring that you understand why the particular investor thought one thing versus another thing. So I think that's a harder thing to navigate, especially if you were not there during 
the race process when that person was brought on board or you were not there in the storytelling but you have to it's like the the odyssey or the mahabharata or something where you know it's not one story people have just kind of evolved it right and so you have to okay what, what's the right pickoff point from here so we can actually start moving the story in a slightly different direction that's hard that's where i've struggled all right very cool let's move into a little bit of a hypothetical situation let's uh, assume that uh, i've joined as a cfo of a company and this is my day one what would you advise me on my first hundred day plan yeah first i would say don't start planning in day one it should be day negative 30 or negative 60. one of the recruiters actually he said this to me he said you know i'm shocked at how little diligence CFOs do before they get into the company. And this is true. I've been surprised by some things and I've made mistakes myself. You you have every right to go very deep. And this is the other thing that I've never understood where, you know, founders like, oh, I can't share the financials and the forecast. It's like, what do you mean you can't share the financials and the forecast? Like that's literally <laughs> like going to be my job when I come in. So that meaning not in the first meeting, but once you're progressing, it's kind of, an, it's your right to, to know exactly what happened. It's your right to know who's on the board, who resigned, what's been the turnover, et cetera. Because you, you really have to know well, what you're getting into and I almost would say not the Vista or Tomo type like deep diligence, but pretty close. You have every right to do that. I think without that, the worst thing is you come in and it's day one. And what's the first sort of complaint that I hear? There's not enough budget and finances under invested in. Well, <laughs> that's true. And that's going to be Seems the like case. a perennial problem. <laughs> yeah. But if this happened up front and you said, well, what are your billing systems? How do you charge? Show me an invoice. Are you dealing with sales tax, right? You could have easily built that inventory of, hey, I'm just letting you know, like, here's the gaps in your tech stack. So I'm not saying day one, I'm going to get Avalara or whatever sales tax platform, but you know, there's going to be a big issue that we're going to have to deal with, or you don't have jurisdiction in certain states, or your pricing is completely off the rails whatever it might be, right? If you do the gap analysis and you have it day one, that should train your next 100 days because then it's a question of what fires you let burn and which ones you have to put out. And then you have to go through the prioritization exercise. And it's frankly very different for every company. So, so let's assume that that was done. I think the bigger thing is a lot of people will immediately go into, okay, I have to go and fix this, which is good. If you're thinking about like the FP&A aspects and the business modeling aspects and getting to know the sales, marketing side, et cetera, I think those, yeah, you just get your hands dirty and get into the weeds of what's happening. But, oh, I have to go and build a GL system or I have to do something. Some other fire is burning here. It definitely needs your attention. It's not that you can ignore it. I would just say... Even if it means like your first 30 days, you're, you're just kind of looking at it, but you're recruiting and hiring someone to do it. Having the right controller or having the right, if you have a controller, the FP&A person, you know, it's a godsend. So I would overinvest time in interviewing and having a good pool of candidates and making sure that they're with you on that build journey only because they may have a better way to solve those problems and have the ability to go deep in areas that frankly don't directly impact the business in the short term to give you the credibility as a CFO, but long term have pretty big implications on scaling, et cetera. 
So I would say, yeah, the diligence has to start negative 30 to negative 60 days before. And the plan and the prioritization list and the inputs, any CFO, I think, can do that incredibly well. And it takes very little effort for them to put that together. And I'm almost surprised where a lot of people say, I've heard this from a couple of CFOs, well, you don't really know until you get there. I'm like, no, no, you can know. Like, I mean, uh, this is not the understanding and access that you have is significantly more than a chief revenue officer or CMO or any other person, right? So you literally have to approach it as sort of an investor plus operator, which is what PEs tend to do much better than the, the venture guys. And if you take that approach, you'll probably know very quickly where you're going to be spending your time. Makes a ton of sense, both on the diligence before joining as well as building a solid team. I totally agree. And uh, I guess uh, from my experience, I haven't thought of it that way, but you know, when I joined Zenoti, I kind of knew where the bodies have been buried. So it became quite easy for me to just hit the ground running from day one because I know the at least the major areas that I need to hit upon. Makes yeah, sense. What you did is actually a pretty innovative thing. I've seen that a lot on the go-to-market and product side, where maybe someone comes in as like, for lack of a better term, a consultant, and then you know the company gets a trial run of their style and then you get a trial run of okay is this what i'm going to do and then you're able to come in so whether it's in a banking capacity in a advisory capacity whatever it might be i actually think cfos can do a lot there because a lot of times even if you're a founder you know it's going to take time to get a a quote-unquote a cfo for the next three to six months but if you're really excited about a company and you're like hey look i'll just do it for equity or even free right i just want to understand what you guys are up to and and contribute and get the front row seat that might actually be like what bankers do right like the free advice that you guys used to give to then land the deal yeah why not you know that might be a, a more interesting way to know what you're getting into well ahead of time makes sense you know, you come across as a pretty calm person, and I'm sure you'll come across a lot of shit hit the moment kind of uh, situations. So how, how do you keep your calm in those tricky situations? My wife tells me I don't save lives. So she just says, you're not that important. Your job is not that important. No one's going to die. Just go in, think about it, fix it and move on. It was a clarity. It was kind of depressing, but it was a very clairvoyant statement where I just tell myself, no one's going to die we'll get through this, right? So, you know, there's this notion of eustress and de-stress. And I would say I'm more, I mean, I'll make another cricket reference. I'm a big fan of MS Dhoni, right? Like where you kind of have to... Makes the two of us. Yeah, you, you have to absorb pressure yeah. because I mean, if you panic, then everyone panics. And it, it's not clear what, the, what that would do. I mean, you could say like, well, you should exude some passion, but I mean, great, but passion without performance is, is probably not what you want. So I do think at least uh, definitely for a CFO having that type of a mindset where you know okay this is like really bad like that an employee suing us for blah 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 or you know we just got like some issue right that popped up that is completely out of your control but if people know like you're not going to go crazy they'll come to you with the problem and then you can prosecute the problem if you're viewed as like mercurial temperamental person they just don't come to you with the problem and that's even worse so I, I would just say as much as we say hey it's super important and you know what i'm doing matters etc which i'm not saying it doesn't frankly speaking in the spectrum of things probably not as bad as we make it seem to be all right pretty cool look we can continue to talk uh, but we do have time constraints so i would like to move to a lightning round very quick it'll be a simple question and then i just need your immediate response right we'll start with something simple uh sweet or savory savory 
Books or podcasts? Podcast. Thinker or doer? Both. <laughs> LinkedIn or Twitter? LinkedIn. Okay. Scotch or whiskey? Whiskey. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Summer or winter? Summer. Growth or profitability? Profitability. Cricket or baseball? Cricket. Uh, what is your one hidden talent? I like to paint. I'm not saying I'm... Okay. You said talent. Maybe yeah. it's more of a passion. Yeah, painting. Uh, Very cool. It's uh, is definitely a passion. I'm not sure if it's talent there, but passion's there. Uh, ideal place to retire? Hawaii. Number one item on your bucket list right now? I want to go to Japan, then Korea. Uh, so travel. All right. Who is your role model, personally or professionally, or someone that you truly admire? Personally, I would say it's my wife. Like she's, it's one of those things where been married for a long time. They they know you better than you know yourself. So sure. she definitely pierces through the bullshit and gets to the heart of the matter very quickly. <laughs> I think professionally, yeah, I've always sort of. I mean, we talked about one, which is Emma Stoney. That's been. I mean, it's just been incredible to see that type of horizon is continuing to play, which I, I just don't know how. Yeah. So yeah, I would say those two. And uh, actually, another person I, I genuinely admire is now that I'm a dad, I'm beginning to admire more and more is my own dad and my mom. I never thought about like what they had to go through with moving and all of the other mm. things. And my dad recently told me, and this is like the classic, you know, immigrant story like hey you know, at one point we only had like a hundred and one dollars in the in the bank account i'm like <laughs> what <laughs> how i would yeah. do that but at least for me and my brother like we just we had no idea like what was happening up there right so definitely a new school of admiration to say okay i don't know how you guys did it but that that's pretty incredible very cool and the last one uh, describe yourself in three words intellectually honest learner or trying to grow now like trying to philosophize i'm not saying i'm a philosopher but i'm getting more into philosophy in general all right very cool this has been an amazing show anant thank you so much for taking the time and uh, yeah i hope to catch up again sometime soon yeah definitely looking forward to catching up in person thank right. you thanks rohit that brings us to the end of this episode we hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.